I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Welcome to Hey, I Want Your Job. And I feel sometimes like I have Jill's job. I don't. But many days, it kind of feels that way. And her job definitely has a very big soft spot in my heart. So, Jill, what is your job title? I am an early childhood interventionist. I do a lot of intervening with early childhoods in this household, believe me. Not in a professional capacity. Definitely amateur status. (laughs) (laughs) Much intervening. So tell us a little bit about what does an early childhood interventionist act? What does that mean? What does that do? So uh, as an early childhood interventionist, I work as a part of a multidisciplinary team, including speech therapists, occupational therapists, early childhood teachers, and physical therapists and psychologists to do evaluations on infants and toddlers to determine whether or not they have a delay and are eligible for early intervention services. Once we do the evaluation, if they're eligible for services, then I work with parents and their toddlers in their home, providing them with tips, strategies, and education all designed to help their toddlers with their development. So I'm going to back up and help Mm -hmm. the people who have not walked a mile or three in these steps. As a parent, one of the things that happens is that everybody tells you to go by what to expect, either like when you're expecting or in the first years or something analogous. And they all have these lovely lists of things your baby should be doing at these times. And it they always have the disclaimers that say, different babies develop at different times. It's okay if your child can't tick all of these boxes, they should just be able to tick some of them. This is an indicator, not hard and fast. And every parent I have ever known in my entire life, Jill, that shit is a scorecard. Yes. And your baby needs to be achieving at least 90% or it is not an A-grade baby. Yes. I myself am guilty. I just took my eldest, oh, and my, I took my, not my eldest, I took my baby to the doctor for his four-year. Mm-hmm. These are the words that came out of my mouth and you know that I know better because I'm calling bullshit on myself because we came home <laughs> And I said, my husband was like, cool, cool, everything great. I was like, yeah, the doctor said he's a tank. That's what he always says about my, our kids. I said, but he's a short ass. And my husband was like, what do you mean he's short? I was like, little bastard's only in like the 73rd percentile. And my husband was like, I mean, first of all, <laughs> anything over 50th percentile by definition is not short. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's just less tall than his brother, who is in the 95th percentile. I was like, he's still like a C grade. <laughs> and isn't it funny why we do that? Because it doesn't even matter. As long as they're following the growth chart, <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's perfectly <laughs> but, healthy. But we always focus on that one thing that they're not doing instead of all the great things that they are doing. And yeah. my children, so like you're an early child, I, I think you will appreciate this story more than most. So my when my kiddo was still three, we were at a family birthday party for my goddaughter. And there was, a, we were outside because COVID um, and there was a spider and um, 
my goddaughter's grandmother was there and she looked at my son and she goes, oh, it's a spooky spider. Is it going to get you? And he looked at her and he went, spiders are arachnids. And while all of them are venomous, the majority, there's only four that are actually deadly to humans. I think I'll be okay. <laughs> and turned and walked away. And she was like, and he's three? And I was like, yes, is this not normal? This is how all three-year-olds do, right? I've had two three-year-olds. A hundred percent of my three-year-olds would have said the exact same thing. Obviously, this is normal. I got to share. So when my son was like two, we were sitting there and our, our process was, you know, he played with his trains and whatever. We watched the nightly news and way back when, I mean, he's 24 now. And my husband and I were sitting there watching the news and he's playing with his trains as normal. And all of a sudden he said, uh, where's Tom Brokaw? And we were like, what? And he said, well, why is Brian Williams there? Where's Tom Brokaw? We were like, holy crap. He noticed that normal anchor isn't there. And he knows the sub's name. The things that they absorb are terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. Know, oh, my I God. I love young kids. They are so brilliant. So, Each and every one of them. They're so brilliant. The other day, my youngest came up to me. My oldest. So my youngest is close, most like me. So he's a massive introvert. Um, My oldest, however... Captain Sparkle Pants is all about look at me, look at me, look at me in everybody's face all the time. And as the only extrovert in our household, he has a hard road, right? Like, because the rest of us are like, oh my God, could you just stop touching us, please? <laughs> Can you take it down a notch? <laughs> or 50, 50 notches would be great. So his best friend was over and they were sat playing and being, you know, six-year-old best friends. My youngest comes up to me at the at the kitchen table, snuggles up next to me and goes, Mama, bitches, am I right? <laughs> and I was like, well, you're not wrong. <laughs> but also, Mommy needs to be more careful <laughs> what she says because that was correctly used. You know, I, I, one of my primary things that I do in my job is I'm working on language because that's probably the biggest area of need that most uh, toddlers that we find. And um, I always tell parents, you know, be careful what you wish for. You know, we're going to get them talking, but when they do, and parents will be like, oh my God, Jill, he said this, or he said that. And I'll be like, well, you wanted him to talk. So there you go. I remember vividly that when they were babies and I was like, I just wish they could talk and tell me what is wrong with them. Yeah. And my friends that have older children were like, no, you do not. <laughs> Enjoy the silence. Not. Yes. The crying <laughs> is bad, but the talking is so much worse. And I was like, no, no, no. And I still like, I would still say as irritating as they can be, yeah, I would yeah. not go back to right they have a need and I don't know how to fill it. Like, I think that is very stressful for any parent. Oh, now yes. they tell me exactly what's wrong. The biggest issue now is the lying. Oh, my uh -oh. tummy hurts. Does it? What do you think would make it better? Ice cream, mama. My tummy hurts because it needs ice cream. Your tummy hurts because you're a liar face. Go, go to bed. Is that lying or is that manipulation? <laughs> I am not sure. My tummy hurts sometimes when it wants ice cream. <laughs> they are very good at manipulation they are both they have mastered it the little one has discovered that 
he can immediately solicit positive response from any adult by saying, I love you. And so Aren't he now smart? wields that phrase like a weapon. Oh, mommy looks cranky. I need something. Mommy, I love you, mommy. I love you so much. What I know this is this is what I'm saying. They're so brilliant. It's like when they come out that there's already a little gene in there somewhere that's a manipulation gene. Like, I mean, I've just seen so many kids over the years where they're doing something naughty and the parent looks at them like, you know, get off that table. You shouldn't be standing up there. And the little one looks at him and does a big smile like, but I'm cute. And then the parent's like, okay, <laughs> they're so good at it. I mean, at 18 months, I've seen kids do this. It's crazy how brilliant they are. Well, I think it makes sense, though, right, from a developmental perspective, because being able to manipulate and, and get the adult creatures around you to do what you want is how you keep fed, right? <laughs> like, well, yeah, like, and this is, yeah, this is actually like a big component of what I talk about with parents. 93% of communication is tone of voice and body language. Only 7% is actually our vocabulary. And that's why sometimes a lot of toddlers get stuck is they are so adept at figuring out how to get their needs met without words that they're like, well, why should I have to do anything more than that? I throw my cup at you, you pick it up and you go get me more milk. So why should I have to, why should I have to tell you I want milk? Uh, we, it has been fascinating as a mom to see that because my kids, as you could tell from my example, are highly verbal. We have right. no issue with verbal development, but my kids also a, I, I abhor baby talk. I don't even do baby talk to babies. I do like the lilting, like, oh, I'm so happy to see you voice. But the words that I use are the same words that I would use with anybody else. Which so, is what you should do, people, just so you know. <laughs> so I have been commended by pediatricians for this, but it's really just because I'm not particularly maternal. So I don't get all goofy. <laughs> about babies i'm like they mostly leak things that i have to wipe like that's not a win for me <laughs> they're not very useful they don't even make good paperweights like they're too wiggly <laughs> they're great until they start moving around when you walk out of no. the room and you come back and they're not where they were and then you're like oh this is turning into work <laughs> no see i think they even before that i felt lied to jill like i, I don't know if you've seen um there's a fantastic comedy special called baby cobra and um I, the comedian's name is escaping me from it which is awful because she's one of my favorites uh, but she's talking about how like when she was pregnant they told her oh when you're you know it's ali wong is her name oh thing. right okay yeah mm -hmm. so ali wong is whole thing about she's like when you're pregnant they tell you, oh, breastfeeding, it's so natural and beautiful, and you connect with your child. She's like, so I'm picturing like this giant lotus blossom in a calm lake, serenely lit, and me with my child bonding, you know, beautifully. What you get instead is a rabid piranha. <laughs> and that is, my children are both of the rabid piranha varietal. It sucked from day one, no pun intended. Like, yeah, at no point, I, if, if I, if I knew them what I knew now, I would still be a mom. I wouldn't change them for the yeah. world, but I would probably have gone in with a lot fewer expectations. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point, what you're bringing up there, because, <clears throat> and I'm glad that moms are talking about that more 
because I know when I had my first, I thought it was going to be the exact same thing like this oh, moment and I was going to be glowing and I'd look like I had my makeup on after delivery and all the pictures you see of everybody that looked beautiful while well, I was induced. I had a C-section. I was a hot mess. My husband kept saying, take him. You need to bond with the baby. Take him. And I'd had Pitocin. My arms were shaking. I'm like, just have them put him in the nursery. I can't do this right now. My body is overwhelmed. And when we got home, there were people in our house. I just wanted to come home to a quiet house with, with a baby that I didn't know anything of what to do with. And it was just the first month to two months for me were really, really challenging because I just didn't know what the hell I was doing. And it, it wasn't the experience that it looked like on TV and that everybody else was apparently having. And in some way, I thought that made me a horrible mom already. You I know. I totally. And for me, I grew up around babies as many women do right? Mm -hmm. Like when we are the babysitters, we're the ones that get shown how to change nephews and cousins diapers and that kind of stuff, right? Um, I have a whole other soapbox about that and little boys, <clears throat> but my husband stereotypically did not grow up around babies. So our baby was his first baby to whose butt he wiped, etc. And for our first kid, continuously, he was coming to me and being like, should I do this? It's your fucking baby. You're just as much to blame as I am. If you think he needs bouncing, go bouncing. Why are you asking permission? <laughs> That's funny because now mine would say to me, why is he doing that? And I was not around babies. The kids that I babysat and grew up with, they were older. So I was not very comfortable with infants to begin with. But he would come to me and he'd be like, well, why is he crying? And why does he do this? And it's like, I wasn't an interventionist at the time when I had my son. I, that, I worked in a prison. Oh, right? <laughs> so I didn't know anything about anything. And I'd be like, I don't know. And he'd be like, well, what do you mean you don't know? And I'm like, he's my first two. I don't know. There isn't like a switch that flips where all of a sudden all of this maternal knowledge and understanding, you know, like my Dr. Spock book, I was like, you know, with the pages like this, I had them all earmarked. I had no idea what I was doing, I which then again made me feel like I was a horrible mom because I didn't know and I should have known. I have literally screamed at my husband more than once. I don't fucking know. You cut the cord. You know, I am no longer attached to this creature. Right. <laughs> You know, and they don't, they don't really talk about that kind of stuff so much anymore, do they? They don't. And I think that it's not like the what now piece and, mm. and the creating balance, right? Because we are doing a better job, I think, about talking about the fact that partners have to step up as much as mm -hmm. whoever carried the child. Mm -hmm. But what we're not doing is telling them what that looks like. Right or giving them the tools to create some confidence mm -hmm. in that, you know, like I, that's huge. And I totally get, you know, the first time when we went to the, so you're going to be a, pa a parent class and they tried to teach us how to swaddle. My husband shot the baby across the room <laughs> three times. Like he took, he hit a pregnant woman with the plastic <laughs> baby trying to swaddle it. So when it came to our baby, he was terrified oh, sure. to swaddle it. My husband is huge. So he's like, he's one of those like, you know, giant mountain of human versus tiny, tiny baby. Um, and so, you know, it, 
I get all of that, but we don't have a lot in place for helping the dads and helping them understand. I know your blog is the mentor mom blog, but mm-hmm. how much, like how much of a resource are you for dads and how much do you find that dads come in and want to know as well? You know, I will say that I'm always very cognizant with everything that I'm writing to not make it mom's this, mom's that, mom's this, because it is a resource for all parents. And I would say that there's a large proportion of dads. I get frequent messages from them with questions about development. So I try to really make sure that everything that I'm writing or putting out there is very um, just, it's for parents, regardless of whether that is a mom, a dad two dads, two moms, it doesn't really matter. The developmental information and the things that we do are the same, regardless of what the family dynamic looks like. So there, I mean, like I, there are so many times and places and things that as a mom of a young human that you just wish you could like phone a friend. And when you do phone an actual friend, then there's guilt around like, are they going to think that I'm a terrible mom? I quit caring about that early on. Uh, (laughs) But it's like, you know, for me, I, but I know one of the big things that I was not prepared for, and I was a fairly educated mom and I was a geriatric pregnancy. So I had watched all of my friends go through all of this. Um, And I, knew that postpartum was a thing. I knew that most moms by like a wide margin, most moms experience one way. I was totally unprepared for it not looking like what I thought it was going to look like. Mm -hmm. I never felt depressed. I never felt like I wanted my baby to be gone. I mean, that's not true. There were moments where I was like, I just need to sleep. Well, somebody please hold this child for 15 minutes. My postpartum with the first one entirely manifested as an absolute overwhelming terror about SIDS. Mm-hmm. I was convinced that my baby was going to die in its sleep because Native American is the highest percentage you can get. And I was like, this poor little bastard is like 25% dead already. Like, I mean, you know, and I, which is not for the record how any of that works, but like, that was what mine manifested as. And there was, and I was not prepared for how long it lasted. It was not, when he turned two, I remember I broke down sobbing because I was like, oh my God, he's safe. My doctor was like, I mean, you should have just told me that that was a thing because based on his size and weight, like you were good a year ago. Like, you're fine. But I was terrified that whole time. And I think that we don't talk about the fact that we think of postpartum is infancy and it carries on into those really early development years. How do you help moms and families engage with that discussion? You know, um, it really, it, it just kind of depends on the family and what's going on. I will say that, um, in my experience, and I've been doing this over 20 years that I haven't, by the time I get into the home, I haven't had but a handful of families where that's really 
an issue as far as like postpartum. Um, I do see. I'm a circus freak. Check. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just saying it's real. It is. I'm not diminishing that. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that I think that maybe by the time, a lot of times when we're getting started with the family, a lot of times the child is closer to two. Mm-hmm. So some of those things have already been resolved for families that have already sought out for help. Um, we just kind of have a whole different thing sometimes that we're working on. The the anxiety of, will my child be able to do this? Is my child going to be able to be in a normal school environment? You know, the whole kind of unknown about having a child with a delay. Are they going to catch up? What What is this going to mean for their future? And, you know, the 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 variety that we see in the role that I have. I mean, there's some kids who are very, very impaired and it's gonna be a very long and difficult uh, road ahead for that parent. There are some children who are doing really, really well and move out pretty quickly. And then there's a bunch of kids that are kind of in the middle that might need a little bit of support or a little bit more support. So I think a lot of it is talking about um, really kind of almost like a grieving process for some families. Um, as you're working through identifying what's going on with their child um, and helping them recognize it's okay to be anxious, it's okay to be scared, it's okay to be frustrated, you know, and helping them understand that sometimes what's going on, at least in my experience, sometimes what's going on is more often related to a grieving process of the future mm-hmm. and the unknown that it is sometimes related to uh, a postpartum. But that's just, again, because most no, of the kids I love, that I start I, working with are two. I think that makes so much sense. And I, because every mom, when you hold that baby for the first time, and when you find out you're pregnant, your mind is like, they're going to take over the world. They're going to be like, everybody has a dream. Yeah. Do I know better than to do that? Of course. I had many scenarios prepared. Let me just be clear. Like, they have been everything. Yes. They're a blank slate. Yeah. But all of them involve some sort of excellence, some Mm -hmm. sort of you know, extreme achievement. And I think that that's probably part of where that pressure around that scorecard thing comes Mm -hmm. in. How do you coach parents to quit seeing those lists as a scorecard and therefore seeing it as a failure when they're not getting an A? You know, I think a lot of it is just helping them understand um, developmental norms, understanding brain science, and also understanding that even though a child might be struggling in one area, that doesn't mean that they're not going to excel in another. I love that you said that, you know, that there are going to be these areas where um, it just, you know, they may not be a kinesthetic wonder, the kid who's going to be on the football team, but they may be a writer or an artist, you know, I mean, if they're struggling with the motor planning stuff, that doesn't mean that they can't do all sorts of great things later on and be in theater or, you know, drama or all of those things or a musician you know, and helping parents kind of accept where they're at now and understanding and letting go. A lot of times I find that there's kind of a hanging on to like, what did I do to cause this? Mm-hmm. You know, what did I do somehow to make my child have this happen to them? And um, I remember many years ago, one of the physical therapists I work with said, you know, parents want to know why, what's causing this. We may never know the why, but it doesn't, it doesn't change what we're doing now and what we're going to do in the future. So we got to sometimes let go of the, we may never know what happened or what caused this. All we can do is look at now and move forward. I know it is. It is really hard. Well, you know, I think like anything, especially with parenting, 80% of it is mindset, right? 20% of it is the tools and the things we do. 80% of it is our mindset. 
you know, if we feel like we're failing and we're not enough and we're doing a miserable job, right? What are we bringing to the plate then, right? And, and we all go through that, right? Yeah, yes. We all go through that. Uh, but we have to, we really have to, I think as parents, really, really, really work hard on our own mindset. That has to be a piece of it. And that's why I'm always telling parents, you cannot pour from an empty cup. You have to take time to refill your well. Because then you've, if you don't, you have nothing to give your child. You're, you're not giving them the parent that you want to give them. So I think that is such an interesting point. And it, it, there's this ongoing debate in my parental grouping um, that I would love to have you weigh in on that kind of speaks to that. So I'm going to set it up. And for a minute, you're going to think that I've squirreled and I haven't. I promise it comes back around. Okay. So when... So as I'm sure you're much better aware than I am, even in a certain class and political leaning of parent, child-led parenting is the deal. When we made babies, I was like, I cannot do child-led parenting. I am a structure lover. Like I need, Einstein makes the baby. Like I cannot, I can't, I can't do that. And so my husband and I kind of sat down and we talked about it and he was like, but I was like, no buts, no buts. If we are crazy because we're living some life that does not work for us, we cannot be good parents. So we made the very conscious effort, like intentional decision that we were going to have a parent-led household that was as inclusive and supportive of child needs as we could allow while maintaining our own sanity. And that, that, may or may not be in vogue or the recommendation at the moment, but it was what we needed to stay safe and stay sane. As our children have grown, what we have found is that people are like, oh my God, your boys are so easy to put to bed. Yes, I say go to bed and they do. They ask for kisses. They ask for a reasonable, what I can classify as reasonable accommodations because I'm an HR chick, right? So like, that's fine. Cool, cool. You want a nightlight, you want a lovey, rock on. But I said go to bed, take your ass to bed. I don't care if you've decided you're tired or not. Whereas the child-led households are continuing to struggle. They have six- and seven-year-old kids, but they have a three-hour put-to-bed routine. Jill, I could not. Like, I cannot imagine that life. That would be so exhausting. And I don't understand how you would ever fill your cup if – Everything you do is driven by a, a tiny, ruthless dictator. <laughs> I really don't understand how you fill your cup. So all of this comes back to the cup question. And my, my question is, if you are in a child-led household, anecdotally, it appears it is harder to fill that cup. What is your recommendation for people who want to have <clears throat> a child-led household and, and still want to be sane? If they're not going to take my path and just say, oh. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to tell you that the way I look at it isn't necessarily through a, a parent led or a child led. I think that as parents, what we need to do is we need to do what I like to call big picture parenting. Everything that our children are doing and experiencing all, especially in those early years, shapes and forms. I mean, their brain is 85% adult size by the age of three with all of the learning that's taking place. And one of the things that I really work with parents on is understanding how what you're doing now 
impacts later on. And what do you want for later on? I, it's just ironic. I was just in the middle of writing a blog post on chores because I hear from a lot of parents, you know, I don't want my child to have chores. I don't want my little ones to have to do chores. And I'm talking about the benefits of chores. You know, like I remember when my kids were little, um, I thought to myself, I do not want to be making lunches for my kids when they're teenagers. Now, some parents like making lunches for their kids. Good for you. I hate making lunches because I make a lunch and it comes home and they didn't eat anything out of the damn lunch because it wasn't what they wanted. So I knew I want my kids to pack their own lunch from an early age. So we worked on that. When they went to preschool, we set up a, a little um, snack area so that they could pick which snack they wanted and they could only have certain snacks from certain areas. So we're not grabbing all of the containers of goldfish. That can't be your only snack today. You can have one from this, you can have a fruit, you can have this, you can have that. And so I've always looked at everything that I've been doing with my kids as how is this going to translate to when they're in school? How is this going to translate to them when they're a teenager? How is this going to translate into their skills and their abilities when they're an adult? And I think that that is a balance of having structure and reasonable expectations in your home, right? And um, sometimes we can't have what we want and we have to accept that. And I think that that's, you know, having done this for almost 25 years, I'm going to tell you that is probably one of the biggest struggles I see with parents nowadays is they just struggle to let their children struggle because they feel like it's being a bad parent. If their child struggles, it makes them feel uncomfortable when their children are unhappy or, or sad or frustrated. And and I want to be clear, it's not because these parents don't love their children with every fiber of their soul, but what I'm finding over the last 25 years is parents have fewer and fewer and fewer tools in their toolbox and they go online to try to find those answers and they're all over the place. You know, you got to talk to them in this way when they're two-year-old. Well, you hurt mommy when you hit her in the face. That's not a nice thing to do. Blah, 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 blah. And the two-year-old's looking at mom like, I don't understand a damn thing you're saying to me, but you're still talking to me. So let me hit you again. You know, so I think it's just about um, thinking about the big picture. Like, you know, I, I was just in a house a couple of weeks ago where the little guy, his lunch or his breakfast lasts three hours. His food is out on his plate. Yeah, <laughs> look on your face. What? He can he can nibble and graze for two to three hours. Oh no no no! We have a timer it, at our yeah. table. Right, and you know, and they have that at school as well, and like. Like Thank they, you. If they sit around and fast for three hours at home and then they get schooled and they're like, oh, mommy, my tummy. No, 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 no. There is a schedule. But see, this is the thing, though, right? Like a lot of parents don't realize that by the time they get to kindergarten, your child has about 15 minutes to eat their lunch. 15 minutes. They don't have an hour like I did growing up, an hour to eat. And of course, you ate in five minutes so you could go play out on the playground for the other 55. They don't have that. So it's like, if, if you want your child to eat, then they need to learn that when the food is put in front of me, it's there for a certain period of time. If I'm not hungry and I don't like it and I don't want to eat, I can get up and go, but it goes, the food goes away and it doesn't come back until later. Again, thinking about the big picture, when they're three and they're at preschool, if they get up from the snack table and go over, decide to play blocks and they come back, guess what? The food is gone. And the teacher's going, ah, you got up. So I thought you were all done, but I wasn't. Well, it's gone now. <laughs> and that's how they learn to make better choices. 
And I, you know, I really think that there, there are some wonderful things about keeping your kid home and raising them yourself. But I will say that putting them in preschool at an early age sure makes a lot of that shit easier, Jill. Because they have that structure like Monday through Friday, right? They like you don't have to tow that line. Somebody else is towing it for you. And I know, like for me, one of the best, most liberating pieces of advice my doctor ever gave us was quit work because we were like, well, how much protein do they need at this? And he was like, stop, stop. You are so overthinking this. They need yeah. so much less protein than you think they do. He was like, just feed them healthy food. Yeah. It will be fine. If there is a problem, we will catch it long before it is a problem. And so we started, we have every dinner, we have healthy mane, we have whatever cooking, chicken and broccoli or what have you. And then we have four types of varieties of fresh fruit and veg on the table. It's in a, um, a Nightmare Before Christmas themed spinner. They love it for what that's worth. But like, <laughs> and that's it, right? And so, and they can have anything on the table in as much or as little of a proportion as they want. There is none of the stuff that I had as a kid, which is we've made your plate and we have half twos and want twos and you have yeah. to, like we have, if they want to have a dessert, so if they want a treat after dinner, then we do have certain parameters that you have to try everything, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But otherwise the food is on the table. I'm not going to tell you what to eat. I love that you're doing that. That I, that is one of my biggest tips for parents because mealtimes is one of the biggest, biggest areas of frustration that families have. And it's because, you know, young kids in particular, they're really usually very good about breakfast because they like those breakfast foods and eggs and toast and waffles and cereal and oatmeal. Lunchtime, well, when we're making lunch for our little ones, what is it? It's usually stuff that they want. We're not having steak and chicken and broccoli at lunch. So usually lunch goes very, very smoothly as well because we're making chicken nuggets or some macaroni and cheese and some yogurt. It's dinner. <laughs> it's dinner. It's when we as parents want to sit at the table and enjoy a meal with our loved ones and with our child. And the kids are going, I don't like any of this stuff. And I always tell parents, if you want your child to sit at the table with you at dinner time and you've got a picky eater, which almost all young kids are, they go through all of those phases, you, you need to make sure you have at least one thing at that table every meal that you know your child will like, whether it's applesauce or yogurt or fruit, whatever. Now, am I going to eat fruit with the dinner? Probably not. But if my child is sitting at the table and has some fruit and participates in this family routine and they eat that banana or some apple slices and they're like, well, I'm all done, you may feel free to go. I'm not going to make a kid sit at the table for the sake of sitting at a table and make my remaining meal with my significant other or family members miserable because I got a kid screaming because they want to get down. We have way too many power struggles at mealtime. Kids, young kids in particular, know what they need. Their bodies know what they need. They know when they've had enough. And there are going to be days where they're hungry and there are going to be days where they aren't. And I don't want anybody shoving food in my mouth saying, try it, take it, take it, take it. I'd be really pissed off and be like, I don't even want to be around you right now, <laughs> right? But yet we do that stuff to kids. You know, eat that. You need to eat that. You're going to be hungry later. Let them figure out that they're hungry later. I remember when my son was about two and a half, 
he was the master of, I'm going to sit down and have this meal. I don't, oh, I see what we got here. I don't like steak. I don't like potatoes. I don't like broccoli. Right. And he'd be like, um, I'm not hungry. And I'd say, okay, go, go ahead and go play up in your room and we'll call you when we're all done. What happens? 15 minutes after everything's put away, I'm hungry. Can I have a snack? Oh, what a bummer. The kitchen is closed for the evening. Oh, but I'm really hungry. Now it hurt as a mom, like, cause you hate to see your babies yeah. hungry. Right. Yeah. But <clears throat> I let him go all night long. And I'm thinking, oh, I wanted to crack and give him some, some graham crackers or an apple, you know, I'm like, come on, stick with it, Jill. You need to win this battle. So he learns to make good choices at mealtimes. And so it was the end of the night. I was tucking him in and I went upstairs and he's like, mom, I'm just so hungry. I'm so hungry. And I said, well, we're going to have a super big breakfast tomorrow. Lots of different options. Your favorite foods. I'm sure you'll choose to eat something then. He says, well, I'm going to starve to death again, like your boys, right? Really quite verbal and chatty and knew all yep. the buttons to push. And I said, oh, you have 14 days before your body shuts down. I'm sure you'll choose to eat something before then. And the steam was rolling out of his ears. <laughs> and I walked out and I had to shut the door. And I mean, I, as a mom, I'm feeling pretty bad, right? Like, oh, oh yeah, I'm so hungry. Never had that issue again. He knew when the food is put before me, if I eat it, I eat it. If I don't eat it, I don't necessarily expect that I'm going to get anything else until the next day. And maybe that's a choice I want to make because I really don't like this and I want to go up to my room. I, so back to your macro parenting, mm -hmm. you know, we, those were some of the things that we talked about at the very beginning, like our big deals were we were not going to fight every single night when they had to go to bed. It was not going to be a thing for us. <clears throat> we value our time as a couple. We value our sleep. No. Um, and we were not going to have fussy eaters. And so, and, and the dinner was for us, not just about food. It was about family connection. And that was important. So we have, since they have been little, we are very blessed that we have this amazing grocery store in our area that where you can try absolutely anything in the store. Oh, you nice. just ask and they'll give you a free sample of it. And we have, we go every weekend and we have done since they were literally the first thing that they ever ate that was solid food came from this grocery store and anything they want to try in the store, they get to try it. I take the back. Anything in the produce section that they want to try, <laughs> they get to try. Um, and any produce that they like, we buy and we take home. And then they're super excited. They're like, I picked out this purple cauliflower that we're having for dinner. Cool, cool. And Beautiful. inevitably people come and they're like, your kids are excited about tomato salad. I was like, they picked out the heirloom tomato varietals for this evening's dinner. So yes, they are. And they're like, I've never seen that in a three-year-old before I was like, I don't know what to say. That's how we roll at my house. And, and so, but they are very adventurous eaters. They get very excited about picking out the fruits and vegetables to put on the table at night. They're like, I want to have the rambutans tonight. No way. It's zucchini night. Again, my understanding is this is not a normal argument between, you know, small humans. And um, so those things have gone really, really well and like making it a game. But one of the things that we do get a lot of pushback from, from our friends, and I'd really love to hear your thoughts, and um, probably this is one we need to bend on. Nobody leaves the table until everybody is finished eating and you have been excused. So your kid who was like, I don't like steak, I'm out of here. And you were like, all right, go play. Not a thing at my house. 
We all mm-hmm. sit at the table, but we talk. We play verbal games. Like, hey, who can tell me a predator that starts with a P? A python, right? Like, we play games. We sing songs. They're very into sea shanties at the table. <laughs> like, all of that. Like, it's fine that it is an embraceive and, like, engaging experience. We talk about we go around the table every day and say one thing we learned and one thing we're proud of from our day and everybody has to do it. And like the four-year-old is like, I'm proud of the coloring I did. I was like, right on little buddy. (laughs) Cool. Cool. So, but others of our friends are very much of the, it's not reasonable to make my children sit at this table for 45 minutes or however long the family meal is going to be. What is your thought? Well, first of all, I love what you're doing there. I love everything that you're saying about the community that you're building at that table. And I think that that should be the goal because we want to have those conversations. I mean, one thing that we know for sure from the research is that families that eat together at least once a day, their children are far less likely to get involved in dangerous activities like drugs and sex and all of that kind of stuff. So eating meals together at the at the table, I think is really important. I think that it depends on a child's age. Like my son was two at the time and trying to this get was him not to... shade from me on you at all right. no, no, no 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 yeah, yeah no but like I think you have to know what and and sometimes as a mom there were days where it's like I wanted him to go <laughs> I wanted him to go I wanted to sit with my husband and not have to appease or try to whatever so I think as parents you know you have to find what works best for you and what works for best for your family now as our kids got older Um, They stayed for longer and there was more conversation because they had more capacity to talk about their day and it did become a routine. Our meals were, I don't know, usually about a half an hour long, I would say. And now I will say too that there were some days where, you know, maybe my daughter was at the table and she just... She just didn't want to be there. And she'd be like, I I just really want to go to my room. Can I be excused? And it was like, okay, because I'm not going to make her stay there if she doesn't want to be there and doesn't want to participate because there are days where I don't want to participate. (laughs) Right. But in, in general, the norm is and should be that we want to stay together at the table and we want to talk. We used to do um, a ritual where every night there was a special plate and the kids got to pick who got the special plate and whoever got that plate, then everybody had to talk about what things they think make that person so amazing and so awesome. I love that. That was one of our favorite mealtime rituals. And, you know, when you can incorporate rituals and things like that, like the conversations that you're doing, it makes that whole, that whole routine uh, just so much more meaningful and memorable for the kids. And it was always interesting to me that like, you know, I'd be like, well, you know, Nick, it's your turn to pick out who gets the plate. And he would be like, well, I think Haley had a hard day. So I'm going to give the plate to her. I think she needs it. You know, I mean, we're talking like four years old, five years old, that they are already that thoughtful to realize, you know, where I think dad's really tired today. Let's, let's fill his bucket, you know, and give him the plate. So anytime you can involve rituals like that to keep things interesting for kids and keep them there longer till they really start to understand, like your kids clearly understand the value of being at that table. It's not necessarily about the food that I eat. It's about the connection as a family. They get really frustrated with their friends. They're like, why are you trying to leave? We haven't sung a single song yet. What are you doing? And their friends are like, I ate my five bites of blueberry. I'm done. And my kids are like, 
you're weird. I'm in. Let's go. What are we singing, mom? You know, like, and, but it is just a family cultural thing. One mm -hmm. of the things that you just said that I have, I, I know I struggle with and, and I know probably all moms do is the, when is it okay to, to break the rules? Because I find if our rule is that nobody leaves the table until everybody is done eating. I don't like people, Joe. I never <laughs> want to sit at a table with two tiny humans who want my attention and the guy that I married who also wants my attention and whoever else has joined us. Like, I always want to go sit in a dark place and, like, put food in my face and then, like, go take a nap. That is always what I want to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're like my spirit sister. <laughs> People are like, why are you a social worker if you don't want people? I'm like, oh, ah, I get this all the time. You're so extroverted. No, I fake it well, very well. <laughs> I am not. Like, let's just say if it weren't for my extrovert, my husband and I would have like been over the moon about the lockdown part of the pandemic. We were like, wait a minute. You're saying stay in our house and never see anybody? Where's the drawback? part because that sounds great can i get a mountainside and a goat the be right <laughs> like, that's totally us but we find that the moment we let a single exception get made now it's easy to make a second exception and a third and a fourth and a ninth and so like and we find we had we backslid and then we have to go back over here. I'm like, I know guys, mommy and daddy were naughty and they were breaking the rules and they were back to the rules over here. Like what is a healthy amount of lenience without beating yourself up? Where's, where do you find the balance there? Okay. So let me tell you a strategy that I used when my kids were little, we would give what we call a give, right? So they got so many of these for different routines. So there could be a give like, you know, we fall into the trap. You take your kids to school to drop them off. And they're like, oh, I forgot my lunch. Oh, I forgot my homework. Oh, I don't have my jacket. Well, I want them to learn. You need to pack your shit and be ready for school the next day. I'm not going to keep running home to get stuff, right? So they would, at the beginning of every school year, get so many gifts. I can't remember if it was like two or three. There were So they got little tickets. So you get three gifts over the course of the year where you can tell me, I need you to go home and get that, and I will, but that leaves you two, and then you're down to one. They never use their gives. They would say, oh, I forgot my lunch. I'd be like, oh, do you want to use a give? And they'd be like, no, I, I might need that later on in the year. Well, they always had gives at the end of the year. You could do the same kind of thing during a mealtime, like, you know, uh, once a month that, you know, if you decide once during the month, during all of the many meals that we have, if it's just that one time that you're like, I just, I'm not feeling it or I'm tired or I just prefer to be by myself right now, that you can use the give. Mom gets a give, dad gets a give, and every kid gets a give. And that's a nice way to put a boundary around something. And it also, it also requires them to do some thinking and problem solving and decision making and it also allows them to know that they have that option. And a lot of times I find kids don't end up using them. They so, just like knowing they're there. That is a genius idea. You should totally do this for a living. Um, but <laughs> what, like at what age is it okay? Because that sounds like a fairly complicated system. And the one 
with your kids in school, like obviously that's school-aged children. At what age is it developmentally or sort of, are they able to understand and engage with that kind of a system? Now, we did it with my son when he was three. Okay. He was able to understand it at three. Now, I mean, you have to understand your child's, you know, um, comprehension and understanding in communication, but that's why we use actual little tickets, little pieces of paper that got hung up on the fridge on a little clip. And that, those were the gifts. So there was a visual reminder. We also did visual schedules and chore charts with our kids from the age of three and up. <laughs> Because that helps them to understand the routines of what's going on during the day as well as, as, well as the things that they need to do. Um, so I think that uh, we did it when he was three. And he knew. You know, I mean, we had to do a lot of kind of coaching through some of it. You know, do you want to use that give today? You'll have two left. And he'd be like, no, no, I'm going to save it. Because I might forget my lunch one day. And I, it'd be more important for me to get my lunch than for you to go home and get my coat today because it's not going to be that cold. But think of all the great thinking that's going on there. I I love it. I am always surprised. And how do you help parents with this? Because so my sister, my sister and I could not be more opposite in very many ways. Um, <laughs> but she is, um, uh, her degree is in early childhood development and she's a uh, elementary teacher. And so this is kind of her space. Her kids, from an independence perspective, Jill, holy shit. Like, at three, they gave themselves, she would just say, all right, dinner's over, bath and bed. And they would go run their own bath, bath themselves, brush their teeth, put on their jams, come out, give her a kiss, and go put themselves to bed. And that was it. No arguments, no guff, all of that from, like, three years old on. My children, they run their own bath, and then they get distracted, and then they play in the bath, and then we go in and make sure that they're actually clean, um, and then they get themselves ready for bed, but they like to have us do it, and mm -hmm. it's a night. It is one of the nicer parts of the evening, right? And so we lean in, but like what? When are kids able to be more independent and what are the things that parents miss the most in terms of those opportunities? Does that make sense? Like, I know yeah. that a lot of parents are like, oh, we can't start, you know, chores until they're like school age. And you've just said, no, 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 give your three-year-old a chore. So, you, you know. You can give a two-year-old a chore. We're right? Montessori family. So our kids have literally, since they could walk, <laughs> chores. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and it's a gradual process, right? Again, it's that big picture parenting, right? Like, what do you want them to be doing when they're six and seven? Do you want to be micromanaging? It's time to go get your shoes. It's time for you to pack your backpack. Hey, you need to put your homework in your bag. You need to brush your teeth. You need to wash your hands. Do you want to be doing those things? Because if you don't, the sooner you start, the easier it is. I mean, chores, I actually, in our house, we always called them a to-do list. Go check your to-do list because as adults, that tends to be more of what we call it as a to-do list. Like, I don't say I got to do my chores. I'm like, I got a lot of stuff on my to-do list. So it, it's really about setting that foundation and building habits because that's really what it is, right? It's a habit. So, you know, a two-year-old can pick up toys. A two-year-old can learn to brush their teeth. The difference is with twos and threes is we're doing it there with them. We're coaching we're providing support as necessary. We're not doing all the work, 
right? We're supporting them in continuing to learn to be more and more independent, you know, rather than us just pulling their pants up after we change their diaper, you know, we teach them how to get your thumbs in and now pull, 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 and we can do hand over hand as we're teaching them how to do that. So it's really all about starting from a young age to help them develop those skills so that they can be independent. And I mean, there's just so many benefits. It helps them with their self-esteem. It helps them with learning how to manage their time later on. There's so many benefits to having young children have more responsibilities as they grow and learn. Plus, it makes our lives as parents a lot easier. I knew I didn't want to be cleaning my kids' rooms and making their beds and packing their lunches and picking out their clothes. I thought the sooner they can do that stuff on their own, the more time we have as a family to sit around that table in the morning at breakfast and have conversations because it's not going to be chaos getting out the door because everybody knows what they need to do. You know, so I looked at it as not only was I preparing them for later on, but I was also affording all of us more time to be together doing what was more important to me, which was connection. And that's kind of, I I think that's a much more elegant way uh, and, and more positive way of saying the way that I probably approach most of most of this is just like, I, I'm not interested in having my life inconvenienced because my children. And so you know, I, and we tend to be pretty punitive. Like you're right. You don't have to clean up your toys, but if you leave them for me, I'm going to throw them away. So it's your choice. (laughs) So I love that you do that. So, um, when our kids were little, it was like a toys need to be picked up by eight o'clock, right? Before, before we start our bedtime routine or whatever. And they would be like, I don't want to be, Hey, either you pick up your toys or I will. I don't care one way or the other. You decide. Well, the first time they chose not to pick up their toys, I was like, ooh, look, it's time for bed. And I came downstairs. Now, did I warn them? Oh, another hour. Ooh, you got a half an hour. Ooh, you got 15 minutes. No. We warn kids. We give them too many of these prompts because guess what? That doesn't happen at work. Doesn't happen at school, <laughs> right? Life doesn't give you 50 million chances to make a better choice. Came downstairs with my trash bag, shaking it out, flicking it. And I went around and started picking up stuff. And I said, well, you guys didn't pick up your choice, so I will. And then they were like, ah, running all over, trying to grab as many as they can. All I had to do was start coming down the stairs and crack that bag. And they were picking things up. And then they would learn. Eventually, they were like, she didn't even need to get that bag out. Because we know my kids are very aware. We just yeah. say, does mommy always do what she says? Always, mama. Please don't throw away my toys. That's what I thought. Go clean it. <laughs> Your choice. As it turns out, if you take away things like their beds, they really believe you, Joe. <laughs> they wouldn't stop jumping off their beds. And like they were jumping and they were hurting themselves. And so we said, we told them next time we take the beds, they did it again. We took the beds. They have mattresses on the floor. And we have said, if you continue to behave badly with those, we will take those away and you can sleep on a pallet on the floor. So this is my favorite, favorite, favorite saying. And it's from the Love and Logic program. And they say, parents need to say what they mean, mean what they say, and do what they say they're going to do. That's the part where it all falls apart. If you don't follow through and make your words goal, You teach your kids that they don't need to listen, that they don't need to do these things. And I'm always telling parents, I know it's a lot of hard work to 
especially with young kids, because it's a lot of physical management, moving them around, moving their stuff around. If you do the hard work early and they realize that you say what you mean, you mean what you say, and you do what you say you're going to do, when they're six and seven and eight and 15 and way bigger than you, when mom says, you're no fun to be around, you need to go up to your room and hang out and come on down when you can be sweet. She means it. I'm going to my room one way or the other. Right. Yeah. So I love hearing you say that you are that parent that says what they mean, means what they says and does what they say they're going to do. My version is I do what I say and I own what I do. And so if, and sometimes mommy does things that she's not proud of and she owns that too. And so I've had to go and be like, Hey man, mommy yelled at you and you didn't deserve that. And I'm really sorry. Also, you're a jerk. <laughs> But that doesn't make it okay for mommy to yell at you. And they're like, it was so scary when you yelled. I know. But it was so annoying when you were a jerk. So I'm sorry I yelled. But can you be sorry for being a jerk? Good talk. <laughs> I'm sorry I was, I was a jerk. I was uh, having a conversation um, with uh, these other ladies. And they were talking about that their family has a do-over. So if there's a situation, they, they said, I, they would go to their child and say, I, I need a do-over. Because that was, I didn't handle that well. And I want you to know that I'd like a do-over. So I want to tell you how I wanted it to, say, to say it and the voice that I wanted to say it and what I was meaning to say. And I apologize for doing it this way, but this is my do-over. And then the kids were allowed to have do-overs because, right, they make yep. mistakes. They say things. And I thought that was that was a beautiful way of being able to allow grace for making a mistake or handling a situation in a way that we don't want to, which happens all the time as parents. And usually when our cups are empty, <laughs> right? <laughs> or we're super overloaded with enough stuff and we can't handle one more thing piled into our brain. And I thought the do-over was a really, really nice strategy that I wish I had thought of when our kids were little. I love that. I may steal that. That's a great. Isn't that great? I know. I told them, I said, I'm going to use that one. Maybe with my grandkids. I don't know. <laughs> Someday. Not now. <laughs> So I cannot believe it. We are out of time. Um, there are so many. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, we have obviously all of the links to where to get your advice and how to reach out to you and all of that. But what have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Um, gosh, I don't know. I just, I love talking to parents and answering questions and giving tips and strategies. So even though we, we talked a little bit about the early intervention piece, I think that there was a lot of great information on things that parents can do and consider as they're raising their kids. That's always my goal is to have parents think now about how they can build the home and the lifestyle that they want with their family and the communication with their kids so that, that later on as they grow older, that we're raising responsible kids that are ready for the world when they get out there because the world is just getting rougher and rougher and more difficult and challenging. So we've got to give them as many tools as possible to be prepared for that. And you are way ahead of the game, my friend. You're doing an amazing job. Oh, thank you. I don't feel like it most days, but I don't think any parent ever does. Like no parent is like, yeah, I'm killing it. Like <laughs> never, never is that a thing. We're like, I didn't kill it today. Hooray. <laughs> Hooray for another day of life. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. This was amazing. You're a delight. Thank you, Joe. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to, hey, I want your job. 
For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com. We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Insta for more insider information. Soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job. <laughs>